This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Rebecca Jewett. Rebecca is the executive director of Palmer Land Trust, a conservation organization committed to protecting southern Colorado's recreational open space, working agricultural lands, and stunning scenic vistas. Under Rebecca's leadership, Palmer has moved away from traditional decades-old land conservation methods and into a more proactive model, pursuing audacious and outside-the-box conservation strategies across a variety of landscapes. By focusing on community above all else, Palmer is finding win-win scenarios that benefit all of Southern Colorado's numerous stakeholders. From ranchers and farmers, to mountain bikers and climbers, to cities, municipalities, and counties. Rebecca is a fifth-generation Coloradan who grew up deeply immersed in the outdoors, which instilled a passion for open space that has guided her career trajectory. After 10 years in public lands-related work, she made the shift into private land conservation when she took the helm of Palmer. As you'll hear in our conversation, Rebecca has big plans for tackling some of Colorado's most pressing conservation issues, issues that threaten the West from ecological, economic, and community perspectives. Her enthusiasm for her work is contagious, and her ability to communicate complex issues in an engaging way is second to none. And some of you who follow me on social media may already know, but I was so impressed with Rebecca and the rest of the Palmer Land Trust team that I left the ranch brokerage business and joined them as a full-time employee several weeks ago. The opportunity to apply my professional expertise in real estate and finance towards such challenging problems facing the West was too great of an opportunity to pass up. So I'm officially a full-time Palmer staff member, Rebecca's my boss, and I couldn't be more excited about the work ahead. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Rebecca because we cover a wide range of topics that should be of interest for anyone who loves the West. We talk about the importance of water, agriculture, open space, and recreation, and how conservation can bring together stakeholders from all of those factions. We chat about the Arkansas River Basin, where Palmer focuses its efforts, and how it encompasses every Colorado landscape, from 14,000-foot mountains to flat, open grasslands. Rebecca talks about her leadership style and also talks about her experience being a woman leader in a once-heavily male-influenced industry. She also explains some of the specific projects that Palmer is taking on and how the entire Colorado Land Trust community collaborates towards common goals. And as usual, we discuss favorite books, films, favorite places in the West, and more. If you haven't already, be sure to give Rebecca and Palmer a follow on social media. And be sure to check the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. Hope you enjoy. first time and they ask you what do you do how do you answer that well first of all thanks for having me ed it's oh, fun yeah. to be here oh yeah thanks for hiring me <laughs> <laughs> uh this is always such a tough question and it so much depends on context so where i usually start is i say i run a land conservation organization and i pause and i see what kind of reaction that gets at all and if people are like oh okay okay then i build on it and i say you know Red Rock Canyon open space, mm-hmm. we worked on that. 
you know, the land, you know, your favorite trail outside your house. We worked on that. But what's so interesting with land conservation is it really depends on where you are for whether people fully get it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find I have to, I have to kind of navigate who the person is mm-hmm. to really explain what I do effectively. But in simplest terms, I can serve land. Yeah. And I think most people listening to this get that idea. And so can you just talk about your official title, the organization you work for, and and what that organization does? Yeah, I'm the executive director of Palmer Land Trust. We're based in Colorado Springs with an office in Rocky Ford as well, which is along the lower Arkansas Valley, southeast of the Springs. We've been around for 41 years, uh, which is actually on the older side of land trusts. And we originally got started to help protect uh, urban areas along the Front Range uh, in the face of development, maintain public open spaces, and continue to add public open spaces to these urban areas. We still do that very heavily, but since that time, we've also evolved into a much broader conservation portfolio where we work with private landowners to protect working farms and ranches. Uh, We work to protect scenic views, especially around Pikes Peak. Uh, and throughout Southern Colorado. And then, like I said, we still work on public recreation. That's a really important part of our our work today, where we're not only maintaining what we have in terms of public access and recreation, but adding to it, which is so critical as Colorado continues to grow. So one of the things that I always thought was really cool about Palmer before I was even officially involved is that the the region that Palmer serves, because I feel like it hits pretty much everything that makes Colorado, Colorado, from the 14,000-foot mountains all the way out to the completely flat, dry, open ranch land. And so could you just talk a little bit about the area that Palmer serves and why that's unique in the land trust world? Yeah, we serve roughly the Arkansas River Basin, which starts at the headwaters deep in the mountains, and flows all the way to the state line. So we have this amazing landscape that includes high elevation mountains, 14ers, and Pikes Peak is in our backyard here in Colorado Springs, which is really unique for an urban area. And then as we go further east, we get into grasslands. And so what we say at Palmer, and this is part of our mission, it's it's part of our project uh, prioritization, is we're protecting the lands that are a part of our identity as South as Southern Coloradans. And that includes everything from, you know, rocky trails around Pikes Peak to rolling grasslands working with ranchers uh, and irrigated farmland right along the Arkansas River. And it is that patchwork of lands that connects us and that is a source of our identity and quality of life and our economy. And that's really been a point we've stressed more and more that land conservation it's 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 not it's not single purpose. It's multifaceted, and it's such a critical part of how we live in Southern Colorado and really throughout Colorado, but especially here. You have the tourism component, recreation component, ag component. All of that comes together. And I, what's really neat to me about Palmer is that we work on all of those fronts. Yeah, and that's what I think is really cool. And I think. You and I understand that, and a lot of people who are deep in conservation understand that. But I think there are probably a lot of people who, when they think of land conservation, they think, all right, we're going to get this piece of land and cut it off so it can't be developed. Wildlife can do whatever, and it's just going to be like a nature park or a nature preserve. And while that may be a small 
portion of land conservation. It's not the real deal and it's not even close to the whole picture. So can you talk a little bit more about that, about the importance of having conservation, not just for pristine open space where nothing but wildlife frolics to, you know, open space for, for people, for ranches, kind of finding that balance there. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways to approach land conservation. You could approach it purely from a biodiversity and ecological perspective. On the far end of the spectrum, you could approach it purely from a people and access perspective. And as as we describe our work and what's really come to guide our approach is we come at it from a community perspective. So what we mean by that is how how does what is the role that land plays in our community and we define community on a lot of different levels you know as micro as the west side of colorado springs to as macro as the regional southern colorado community that we're all a part of and how that guides our work is identifying those landscapes and those land uses that are really a critical part of our greater community whether it's you know and the economic base that that provides for rural communities along the lower Arkansas Valley, or whether it's public open space and the tourism that that attracts in the Pikes Peak region, um, to the scenic views that are inspirational, it's all of that together. And we really work to listen to the community and to to have that guide our work in terms of priorities. Um, And I think that is a more unique approach um, by and large. And I think that is also a direct outshoot of that diverse project portfolio where we can we can work on a number of different projects as as they fit into this greater fabric of regional community. Yeah, that that makes that's a perfect explanation. And it leads me to my next question, which is. One of the other things that attracted me to Palmer is that it is, and that I admired long before I was ever involved, is that it, it operates on a you know huge landscape scale, you know from the high you know the the tops of the mountains all the way to the plains, but it's small enough to where you can focus on that community, and some you know some land trusts maybe just focus on even a, a certain neighborhood. I mean, it could be that small, and then some like the Nature Conservancy focus on the world. And so Palmer has chosen to focus on this region, you know, pretty large landscape, but it's small enough to where you can understand the communities. Can you talk a little bit about that and Palmer's role just in in being a, a community leader? I really think there is a sweet spot in terms of size and focus that is a region. You know, we are small enough in terms of our geographic perspective where we can really get to know the communities within our area, where we have somebody in Rocky Ford who is, you know, has his ear to the ground and is informing our farming work very closely and where we're deeply connected to county commissioners and uh, other nonprofit groups so we can provide we can provide that authentic community perspective as we move projects forward. But then we're also big enough where we still have the resources and the landscape scale perspective to do really exciting, effective, large-scale work. We can also play a really important role at a statewide level where we're representing Southern Colorado in policy work. 
Um, and I just think there there is a sweet spot there of that perfect balance between being connected on the ground, but still having still the perspective that makes the work uh, broader and relevant to a much larger audience, which I think helps helps us all at a statewide level. And and so I think we've really hit on a sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely unique in in the conservation world. And I had the unique perspective of being in the ranch brokerage world and doing some conservation work, and I was able to kind of see what all the different land trusts were doing. And I always thought that Palmer just had this sweet spot that not many others do. Um, and so another thing that attracted me to Palmer that I thought was very unique um, compared to the majority land trust is how strategic Palmer is and how, you know, I think the the classic model of land trust, and correct me if, if you disagree, but is – um, you know, land trust is in, in business and then people come to them and say, hey, I'd love to donate a conservation easement on my property. Can you help me? And they say, sure. And they do it. Whereas, you know, and Palmer pro- did that probably for years, but at some point shifted into this more of a, a focused strategic vision of what they wanted to do. And so I, I see Palmer as being very, very proactive and focused on on goals versus just waiting for people to knock on the door. And so can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that how this strategy kind of came to be and, and separates Palmer from separates Palmer from other land trusts who are just kind of doing it have been doing it the classic way? I think some of that approach comes out of some pretty big challenges that we faced when I started and it probably preceded us. And you know, I think we're there are some organizations where easements will walk in the door. I've never been in a position where we have too many easements walking in the door. And in part, we've had a lot of challenges at a statewide level with our, our policies and our tax credit program and, and, and just incentives for landowners that have been uh, harder to insure at times. I feel like I really started at Palmer during a time where there were immense challenges mm-hmm. to this work. So I think this this more strategic approach came out directly of a need to say if we're going to move the needle on conservation, we can't wait for it for the solution to walk in the door. We need to be very proactive. Where are we needed the most? What does our region need? Let's go do it. And that really spurred opening an office in Rocky Ford. You know, there's not a local land trust presence in greater southeast Colorado. For people who aren't familiar with Rocky Ford, can you describe that? Yeah, Rocky Ford. So it's southeast of the Springs. Uh, it's about uh, an hour east of Pueblo, Colorado, which is due south of Colorado Springs, right along the Arkansas River. An amazing farming community. There are a lot of wonderful farming communities along the Arkansas River. And, and Rocky Ford uh, has been uh, a vibrant farming community for a long time. But as, as it has become harder and harder to be a farmer and uh, to make a living at it, rural communities like Rocky Ford have really been challenged. And um, it, has, it has seen a decline in population like a lot of areas in southeast Colorado. So we opened an office there uh, a number of years ago, and we've staffed it with uh, a local person who's a farmer himself. And we we knew that we were only going to be effective if if we took that really big step of of putting our stake in the ground and saying this is important farming is important in our region and as we looked around and there wasn't really anyone else stepping up to do it 
we realized there was a really wonderful opening for us to do that. And so that, that strategic planning has then driven other parts of our work as well. And I mean, I do like to say yeah, planning is essential and plans are useless. I yeah. think that process of planning, I say that all the time, <laughs> that process of planning is so powerful because then it gets everyone on the same page. And I've served on enough boards and been involved with enough other organizations to see strategic plans that went nowhere. Mm-hmm. So when we did our strategic planning work a handful of years ago, the, the whole purpose was to come together as an organization and and move the needle on conservation and you're only going to do that if you know where you're going and you're only going to do that if then you remain just relentlessly focused on those goals yeah i think writing the plan is is the, kind of the fun part and then uh exactly. <laughs> making it making it happen is a whole different deal that's what in business school people used to always come up with these you know big business plan i'm gonna make a a, a much better iPod. And you're like, cool. That sounds great, but uh, good luck doing it. Another adage: ideas are cheap, right? Yeah, ideas that's right. are so cheap. It's yeah. really the execution of the ideas. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, a lot of the work that I'm going to be doing is down there along the Lower Arkansas. So, could you just give kind of a, a brief description of some of the challenges that are, are some of those farmers are facing down there related to water and what Palmer is? has planned and is currently executing to help them out with that. So to take kind of a big step back, water is really the most pressing issue that we face in the American West and certainly in our region. And and our region has seen a tremendous amount of what's called municipal buy and dry, where growing cities, primarily along the front range of Colorado, have acquired water from farmland, productive farmland. And as a result, those farms had to dry up and that's water was permanently transferred to cities. We've seen that uh, that happened in the 70s and 80s in Crowley County, which is adjacent to El Paso County. And the result of that is devastating. 90% of the water was sold in the 70s and 80s. And today Crowley County is one of the poorest counties in the, the country. Uh, The prison industry has replaced the ag industry and prison inmates rival the number of citizens in Crowley County. We don't want to see that happen anywhere else in southeast Colorado. But as Colorado Springs grows, as the Denver metro area continues to grow, this is a a real question of where's the water going to come from. So we've been working with farmers along the lower Arkansas Valley, and we have two priority areas. One is the eastern Pueblo County along the Bessemer Ditch. This is home of the famous Pueblo Chili. For any New Mexico listeners out there, I'm just going to say it. The Pueblo Chili. (laughs) I'm on a personal... quest to knock hatch off of its little chili perch. The Pueblo chili is grown there along with um, a lot of other fruit and vegetable production and then Rocky Ford, home to the Rocky Ford cantaloupe, which is also well known. The challenge that we have faced since we opened the Rocky Ford office and have started focusing on this work, there's a lack of development pressure. These are rural areas, you know, and, and while Denver and Colorado Springs are booming, Rocky Ford is not a booming area. So what we have found as we have tried to conserve farmland and this incredibly valuable water rights is that our traditional process of putting a conservation easement in place with an appraisal that takes into account comps and, and you know, how an easement reduces the value of land, that process isn't working along the lower Arkansas Valley. And I have appraisers 
who are telling me the highest and best use of that piece of farmland is farmland. So if you're restricting it with an easement to be farmland, the landowner isn't giving anything up. Sure. Therefore, there's no value to that conservation, that that conservation easement, which basically means we can't do our work Mm -hmm. because those landowners are giving something up. They're permanently restricting these incredibly valuable water rights to be used only on farmland forever, mm-hmm. as opposed to selling it to Colorado Springs and at some point in the future. For a lot of money. For a lot of money. Yeah, in some cases, more money than the land's worth. Exactly. And, oh, it's the, the water is far more valuable yeah, than yeah. the land. Um, well, and so I know that you and some other folks from other land trusts around the state are working to figure out a new way to value these easements. Can you just kind of give a brief overview of that? Yeah. So the whole concept is, can we, instead of valuing a, a hypothetical loss, development loss, you know, that what the landowner is giving up, can we actually value what we're actively, actively trying to conserve? That could take a couple of different forms. You know, there's a, a whole field called ecosystem services, right, that puts a, a value on the services that nature provides. So whether it's, you know, water filtration uh, up in the mountains and clean air with trees and vegetation. But can we use that same concept of what is what value is this piece of farmland providing to the greater community to then actually put a value on that easement that can turn into a financial incentive for landowners. That's a really big, exciting, overwhelming issue. Uh, But in Colorado, we've been conservation leaders for a long time. And I think this is a great place to try to explore those kinds of alternative methods that can keep conservation going. And so to your question of you know your role and and what you're looking at, I think what's so important is that if we have to figure out how to scale conservation, mm-hmm. looking at alternative financing mechanisms, looking at you know how we scale this from a resources perspective, and um, and you know engagement perspective with communities, and so how can we you know the transaction side of this work? How can we figure out new ways to do it to be effective? Yeah, and, and just to go back to when you were kind of describing the area down there, you know, I've, I've been working out here in the West for, I mean, over a decade, and I just never had the full appreciation for everything that was going on out there in East Colorado. And over the years, I've slowly started to figure it out. But when you go there to Crowley County, you know, we can sit here and try to explain how bad it is because of that dried up um, land. But just for people listening, it's worse than you could imagine. I mean, it's the only thing that came to mind when I read it is uh, Timothy Egan's book, um, Worst Hard Time, about the Dust Bowl. Mm. And you go out there and you see, you know, there's a level of poverty out there that's just heartbreaking. But then from an ecological standpoint, I mean, it's like a desert. And you, you when I was out there driving around um, for the first time, you see, you know, tumbleweed blowing around. Yeah. There's no grass. There, there were dust devils flying around. I mean, it's is crazy. It, it, exactly. And so land conservation, when you're talking about something like farmland, it's it's an environmental, there, there are reasons to do it environmentally, socially, culturally. Mm-hmm. That's That gets back to that community piece where land is just this, this foundation of our lives here in the West and especially in Southeast Colorado. And, and once that water leaves, it's, devastating it's, what's yeah. left in its place dried yeah, and, up farms and there's no way grass could grow back i mean you no. you could do try to do a reseeding or, or something like that but in crowley county 
they didn't recede when they dried it up. And it would take tens of thousands of years for that to recover, if it ever did. For people who want to see, just go to Google Earth and zoom in on Crowley County, Colorado, and you can see how it's like a desert. I mean, you can see it on the satellite images. Mm. It's wild. It's, I mean, it's just completely wild. And it's amazing to me that until a few years ago, I didn't really understand that. Because I think here in the West, people were focused on the big mountains or, you know, these wide open grasslands. And somehow, you know, farms just have fallen off the radar. They have. And and I think it's because farms are interesting. They're not, of course, native. They're not the native landscape. We've come in and we've tilled up the soil and we're growing crops on them. And so they they're, they kind of fit into this interesting category. So people who are purely interested in ecological preservation, of course, you're not going to focus on farms. People in urban areas who are excited about recreation, they don't care about farms. That's that ag stuff that, you know, that's not here. And I, f- and I feel like it's a very underappreciated component to our landscape. And, and the only reason we're here, the only reason Colorado Springs exists and Pueblo exists is because we figured out how to grow crops in this incredibly arid environment. And, and we figured out how to divert water out of the main waterways through irrigation canals, uh, to, to have productive farmland. Mm -hmm. So as part of our history that I think is really easy to not appreciate and maybe then discount as part of our natural heritage, Mm -hmm. But that's why we're here, and that's why we've survived for so long. And you could argue maybe we shouldn't be here. It's such an arid environment. But here we are, loving the American West. And farms play such a big role. And we're not seeing a lot of conservation organizations focused on that from a water perspective or from a land perspective. Yeah, and I think to expand on that a little bit, you know, you think about – I, being having spent lived in Boulder for seven years, I could hear somebody saying, "Well, the land shouldn't have been tilled up in the first place, or it's not supposed to be farmed." And but it is, and it, it has been, and we have a thing called private property rights, and there are fences down there, and so you know it is what it is, and it's producing food for the citizens of the United States, and it's supporting a local economy. And so, until somebody can come up with a time machine, um, you know, I think it's our it's our responsibility to protect that land, make sure it's not dried up, keep it in production, which helps the community. And I mean, I think that is hands down the best, the only approach. I mean, what else are you going to do? It, it's so important. And, you know, there's a startling statistic. Farmers have a higher suicide rate than veterans. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And it's, I am, it, it, it's also such rewarding work to be able to meet these families, multi-generational farming families, and, and to understand the complexity and the nuance of the land and the water and how water in Colorado, as we all know, and throughout the West is fascinating mm-hmm. and you can love it, you can hate it, but it is such an important, uh, thing for us to be working on in Southeast Colorado. And how do we, and we really approach our work. One of the things we're really trying to overcome in conservation is that idea that everything's a zero sum game. So either, you know, cities win and get the water and farms lose or vice versa, only farms get the water and then cities lose. We cannot think that way anymore. And not just with farms, it's also with recreation and development and and how our cities are going to grow. 
I really think it's critical that we think more and more about how we balance these competing priorities. So one of the things we're doing in Eastern Pueblo County is working with the city. Uh, uh, Pueblo Water acquired about a third of the water off the Bessemer Ditch in 2009. And we're working with Pueblo Water and farmers to try to identify how can we balance the use of this resource? Is there a way we can still protect a critical mass of farmland here in eastern Pueblo County while ensuring that Pueblo gets the water yield that it purchased Mm -hmm. (laughs) for a lot of money? How can we do that? How as a community can we grapple with that and provide balance? Can we come up with innovative water sharing solutions between, um, you know, farms in southeast Colorado and Colorado Springs. You know, you look at a city, a city needs water in times of drought. Well, could we fallow farms for short periods of time during times of drought to then provide water to cities through water sharing arrangements? You know, these are called alternative transfer mechanisms, ATMs, very buzzy word right now with Colorado water issues. But we're looking at that in southeast Colorado because we have to figure out how to balance these uses as cities grow. Yeah, and that's just a perfect example we were talking about earlier about being strategic and thinking Thinking big, thinking outside the box, making these you know big plans, and then mm-hmm. going hard as we can. Um, and then uh, to to speak a little bit more on the the idea of people collaborating, I think that um, it, it seems that conservation is, for most parts, is a is a bipartisan um, issue, and people love it. And so I I want to talk a little bit more about your previous career, but I know you used to work a lot in the public lands side mm-hmm. of things, and that can be. You know, I think everybody loves public lands, but those fights can be somewhat adversarial. Yeah. And compared to the private land com- uh, conservation, it seems that that is much more collaborative between land trusts, between municipalities and land trusts, private landowners and municipalities. I mean, I think people want to work together. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's because land, again, getting back to this community focus – it pings on so many different elements of our lives. And so regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, you're impacted in some way by land uh, and how you use it. And that that effort to to bring people together around land as this you know place where we spend time with families or where we get local food and, and whatever it may be, that it has nothing to do with, you know, your political mm-hmm. um where you are politically. And that I think is really powerful. You know, we, Southeast Colorado is a very conservative part of the state. And we have found that we have just amazing partnerships from people on all both sides of the aisle, coming from all sorts of different perspectives. And we really are working to bring developers together um, with recreational users here in the Springs, or whether it's farmers together with cities down in you know the lower Arkansas Valley, it's all about bringing people together um, and when we talk to people, it's unequivocal. Like, what do you love most about living in Colorado? They they inevitably point to some element of the land. Here in the Springs, Pikes Peak, it's a beacon. I mean, it's here in our backyards. In the lower Arkansas Valley, it's the river and those wide open spaces with grassland. So it really is an issue that cuts across all party lines, which I think is such, it's such an important and exciting place to be working today. Because it brings people together. Definitely. And so one more one more subject in kind of in that vein. So we've been talking about the private land and the, the private farms out in eastern Colorado. Can you talk a little bit about the public lands here in the mountains for recreational purposes that Palmer has helped conserve? Yeah, Colorado Springs has an amazing 
backyard here of public public lands. Uh, we have a, a wonderful, robust city public open space program, and we have played a hand in conserving you know nearly all the public open space that we all enjoy. Red Rock Canyon, open space, Ute Valley, Stratton, uh, you know, you name it, we helped uh, acquire it, and then we now hold a conservation easement in perpetuity on it. And and then behind, you know, beyond city limits, you we have national forests. We have Pike National Forest, which makes up the majority of our backdrop here. So it's a really interesting area from a public lands perspective where we have all levels. We have city, state, and federal public lands. State, we have Cheyenne Mountain State Park just to the south, Mueller State Park not too far away from here. And, and I've worked in, I worked in public lands for 10 years before coming over to Palmer Land Trust in uh, public lands, certainly how I got my start in conservation. I think public lands are, are really important because that is how people enjoy the outdoors. Whether you're talking about a city park or you're talking about doing a backpacking trip on forest service lands, yep. that is how we as a state enjoy these lands. Yeah, it's like that marketing campaign that Palmer has in the video. It's why we live here. I mean, that couldn't be more accurate. That's why I live here. Exactly. And that's, that's why we moved to Colorado Springs, because it's up against the mountains. Exactly. You know, people who don't live here think Denver is the a mountain town, but it's, uh, you know, you're an hour from a trailhead there, I yeah, would the guess, 45 is, minutes. Denver is a city on the plains, and yeah. Colorado Springs is a city nestled up against a 14er. Exactly. And there are mountainous, hill, super hilly parks in town. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, where you, you know, you're going to, you're going to be out of breath if you're trying to run there. So we, we, we need to talk more about Colorado Springs in general, but I'm sure people want to know more about you specifically. So you've been in Colorado for a while, huh? I've been here a while. Your fam is? (laughs) I'm a fifth generation Coloradan, actually on both sides of my family. I I mean, it it goes, it goes back. Yeah. 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 Which is really neat. I mean, the last couple generations have all been Denver. Sure. uh, So I can't say that I'm, you know, a fifth generation farming family. (laughs) It's, we're, we're Denverites for the most part. But yeah, we go back to uh, the San Luis Valley on one side and Central City Blackhawk on the other. So farmers and miners. Wow. And yeah. where did they come from? Do you know where your ancestors came from? Honestly, I don't really know. I, I didn't even, this is going to sound crazy. <laughs> I didn't realize I was a fifth generation Colorado until I started working at Palmer. And I started meeting these multi-generational uh, ag families. Uh-huh. And and I was talking to my folks one day. I was like, well, we've been in Colorado a long time. But it's funny how quickly you can become disconnected sure. from your past. And so because we've been on the front range for so long, and I grew up in Boulder County and Longmont, you know, the, that, that rural side and that deep history is, is not necessarily something we talked a lot about. Mm-hmm. So I actually want to do more exploration there and really understand it. But I just think that speaks to the general trajectory of, of most people as we become more urbanized. We just become very disconnected with our histories mm-hmm. and, and our histories with the land in particular. I say this on pretty much every one of these podcasts when I talk to somebody who's been here for a long time, um, but I just, I can't get my head around how tough your ancestors must have been. I mean, it's just a whole different, I I just can't even understand it. Coming out here, probably, you know, 1800s, late 1800s, when it wasn't really settled, going to work in a mine, I mean, that's just, uh, 
it makes me feel like such a wimp. Whenever I, I go into the mountains and, you know, I, I like to climb mountains and, you know, you see those old mining remnants, which I just love mm-hmm. just looking at them and imagining like, all right, there, there were people who lived in this area trying to make a go of it, work in the land, whatever it may have been, mining or, or some kind of production and thinking through the winters and it's just amazing. It We're is so amazing. soft now. We are soft. There's no way around. That's why we do like all this mountain climbing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Try to we go get seek back out that <laughs> yeah. adventure. But... Elective suffering. <laughs> um, so you you were, grew up in Boulder County, and then you chose to go to Colorado College. And being from the East Coast, I never had heard of Colorado College, which is ridiculous because it's an awesome school, and it's such a unique school. Can you talk a little bit about Colorado College for people who don't know? Yeah, Colorado College is unique. So it uh, runs classes on what it calls the block plan, which is one class at a time for three and a half weeks. And then you have, you know, the same number of classes in a full year, but you're just doing it in a very focused way. And it has its pros and cons. I was a political science major, which honestly is probably one of the easiest and best majors on the block plan. You can just, you know, you just dive into your studies. My husband went to CC and he was a physics major. I don't know how you do (laughs) science on the block plan without just going crazy. But it's a really cool school. You know, it's pretty small, but uh, I enjoyed it. Both my parents went there, so I'm a legacy student. And it's, 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 it's great. And it's... It, it, I, I certainly learned how to think and I learned how to focus. Um, I also learned that I, I think it taught me to only work in a, you know, in a procrastinating way. Cause yeah. you're always, so, so, you know, I have to like sort of force, procra- force uh, deadlines at times to sure. get something done. Cause that's how I was trained, <laughs> yeah. but it was a good, it was a good experience. And so when you were in co- at Colorado college coming towards you, your end of the end of your time there, what did you think you were going to do? Did you did you see a career in conservation? No, I thought I'd go to law school, which sounds so cliche with every political science major yeah. out there. Um, however, I started, I didn't realize this at the time, but I really started my conservation career at CC. Uh, I started working for a conservation organization doing trail work and, and restoration work. I uh, started on, you know, I took a spring break trip and went out to Utah and, and built trail in Indian Creek Canyon, which is still one of my favorite places in the world. And, and then continued to work with that organization, uh, actually post-graduation and kind of worked my way up the ranks and was leading trail crews, um, decided to then that I didn't want to do trail work forever because that was going to kill me in the long run (laughs) and decided to get my master's, uh, at DU, University of Denver. And then back to work. For the same organization? And then back to work for the same organization. So I got my master's in environmental and natural resources law and policy. Yep. I, just, I quickly decided that law school was not actually how I wanted to. Yeah, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Good move. Whew. Figuring that out. Dodged a bullet that there. That career has changed from when you were thinking about it till now. It's a different career. Yeah, that it whole is. The whole business model is different. I, I, I couldn't do it. and But I still got the policy fix that I loved through grad school. Yep. And ended up back at Rocky Mountain Field Institute as their uh, associate director uh, after grad school and then actually worked my way into the executive director position. So I was at Rocky Mountain Field Institute for, I mean, like 10 years all in. Yeah. Um, 
and that's that that's what launched my conservation career did so thinking back to when you were a kid i mean did you was your family one that spent a lot of time in the outdoors did you go camping a lot and yeah was that a big part of your life yeah it was we uh i actually probably did my first trail work uh volunteer experience when i was i think i was like seven or eight and my mom dragged me out on a trail crew and with volunteers for outdoor colorado really yep and and so we did stuff like that we went on yurt trips cross-country skiing i actually didn't learn how to alpine ski until high school because my mom was a cross-country skier and she's like as long as i have you you're before you find gravity and (laughs) downhill skis i'm gonna make you cross-country ski so we did yurt backcountry yurt trips awesome and then 14ers climbed my first 14er at 11 did which one elbert start at the top right well sure (laughs) it's all easy after that that's uh (laughs) That's super cool. Um, so when you think back to being a kid, is there a is there a certain uh, memory you have of an outdoor experience that was pretty formative, um, like kind of a maybe a crazy one or a scary one or just a, a powerful one, something that you can look back on and think, well, that was that was kind of the start of all this. A memory does come to mind, and it's 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 so. It's not major, but I remember sitting on the tailgate almost every evening. My family would sit on my dad's pickup truck tailgate and watch the sunset over Long's Peak. And it's just, I mean, just that, I think, is that stopping and appreciating nature Mm -hmm. for a minute and just kind of taking it all in. And I mean, still to this day, when I look at Pikes Peak or I go on an evening walk, I mean, it's just that deep appreciation for sense of place and you know growing up in Longmont in the shadow of Long's Peak and now living in Colorado Springs in the shadow of Pikes Peak I think that has actually been more formative than I've had plenty of wild experiences and and I mean hundreds of days in the backcountry doing trail work which I love but in some ways it's the simple stuff that really connects me and that sense of place that's great. I, I'm going to need uh, the, the part about sitting down at the end of the day. I'm going to need to enact that in my, my household. <laughs> Watching the sunset. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, so how did you end up at Palmer? So I was the executive director at Rocky Mountain Field Institute, and I had joined the Palmer board. I decided I really wanted to expand my knowledge of conservation well beyond public lands. Uh, it was a personal interest of mine at the time, so I joined the board. And then actually a year later, the, my predecessor, Scott Campbell, uh, decided to, to step down, and, and, and he and I had started having conversations about uh, where, to, where he saw Palmer going, and, and I, th- I think he had a plan for me before I even realized <laughs> it, to be honest. But then uh, suddenly, you know, he was definitely leaving, and, and he talked to me, and I talked to the full board, and then, you know, I, was, I decided I was really interested in moving over to Palmer. And uh, it's been the greatest decision of my career. I'm sad to leave the the public lands volunteer stewardship world, but sure. it's in good hands. Yeah. And this working working at Palmer Land Trust and tapping into the private land conservation side of this work with still the public land side with everything we do with public open space. But now you know we're getting more involved in policy work. We're working on these emerging issues like alternative valuation. It's such a good, there's just endless intellectual engagement for me. Mm-hmm. And it really, it, it, I am, I'm so excited about where we can go. And I feel like I'm really 
the the volunteer stewardship work was so reactive you know populations growing we need to continue to fix this trail and we had the waldo canyon fire we need to come in and, and do post-fire restoration I feel like at Palmer, I've moved into a more proactive side of conservation. Where do we actually see ourselves going? Where, what new landscapes do we need to conserve? You know, how can we do this work better yep. and, and move our community forward when it comes to conservation? So as a leader, when you're, you know, there obviously are huge challenges ahead and, and big challenges to figure out everything we've been talking about. So as a leader, um, being in charge of this organization, how do you balance or figure out a way to balance having extremely audacious goals? They're going to get everybody fired up and excited with keeping it somewhat in the realm of realistic, like these goals that you've, uh, that you've set. I mean, you fully believe as is everybody working here that we can get it done. Um, but I would think as a leader, it could be it could be challenge, it could be tempting to try to go bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So, how do you do that? Well, that's a big question, and and that that is that balance of you know what what is that big far off goal that's just the right stretch to keep us moving forward without being so overwhelming that we just want to throw in the towel. And I think, I mean, one is acknowledging, and I really credit the board with this too, that we're growing as an organization. So we need a goal that's going to keep us growing that we can really grow into and, and making sure it's not a goal that's too too achievable that we don't stretch it all and we don't have to figure out how to do it. You got to put a goal out there that you don't know how to solve yet because yeah. that's what pushes you keeps the team going. And I think it's a big balance of, you know, talking enough about the big goal and having that be the North star and getting everyone excited and on board, which is, which is where everyone is at Palmer with then being really realistic about what we're doing day to day and how it's really just one step at a time. I do find that I'm constantly going back and forth between big picture thinking and then super in the weeds. And I just, I kind of almost like feel my brain expanding and then shrinking. Um, and so I don't know, I think I have an ability to be nimble like that, to think on both planes at the same time. But what I have to be really aware of is to, to, I, I need to make sure I'm bringing others along too and not getting too far out ahead. Sure. And I have gotten too far out ahead of the board at times. Mm-hmm. And so I think the board's really there to help bring me and the staff back and keep us in check. And so it's just, I, I guess the only way to describe it, it's a very dynamic situation. And the key is that we're just constantly talking about it and that we're, we're checking in and we're figuring out, you know, all right, if, if we want to be, you know, at this point with preserving farmland on the Bessemer in five years, just what does that mean for this year? Sure, sure. <laughs> and it, it really is making it more uh, achievable in the short term so that we can, you know, keep making progress towards that goal. So if you had to boil down your leadership style, how would you, what would you say it is? I think I am a very big picture thinker. Uh-huh. That's what everyone tells me. Yeah. <laughs> and and very team oriented. Yes. I like to I like bringing together a team and often a small team of people. You know, we have nine staff here at Palmer. We're pretty small to get really big stuff done. So finding just the right people with the right skills to plug in mm-hmm. and and it's putting that puzzle together. 
So uh, in terms of leadership, uh, that really big picture thinking that can inspire people and, and keep them engaged uh, with then also just making sure that there is a framework that's moving it forward. And those things, it's hard to balance those things at times. Yeah. I know that things suffer, like the framework suffers internally at times if I'm focused too much on the big picture goals. But in general, operating from that perspective, I also, I, I don't have a lot of patience <laughs> for mm-hmm. nonprofits that aren't truly interested in making an impact. I mean, why are we all here? Yeah. Let's move the needle on conservation. I really have no interest in conserving one property at a time if it's not moving towards some bigger end. Sure. Um, and I think that's probably just, that's what I, that's probably the biggest thing I bring to Palmer is yeah. like, let's move the needle. Which shows, I mean, that's, that's what attracted me initially to the board and then to devote my full professional attention to it. I mean, cause you just don't see that, or at least I've never seen it. Maybe I'm missing something, but that's just, that is a huge exception to the rule. Too many organizations are just trying to survive day to day. And I get that because I've been there. I, when I started at Rocky Mountain Field Institute as their executive director, we were having real conversations about whether to sh- close the doors because it, it was a very small operation and we didn't know whether it it could continue to go. But, and this is the tough part, how do you create the space to be inspired yourself and keep looking to the future and have that bigger vision while also still focused on the day to day, but you can't get too dragged into the day to day or you're never gonna, you're never gonna move the needle and you're never gonna inspire people. I mean, you know, that's the key to fundraising for a nonprofit. You need a big vision that people are excited about and you need to figure out how to get it done. Mm-hmm. So when you, you've been leading people for a very long time and you've been leading, not just leading people, but leading people in, towards very important goals that are, you know, beyond just trying to make as much money as possible, like say a CEO of a company. I mean, there's kind of two levels to it. Um, you're leading people, but you're also pursuing these very, very noble goals. So when you look back on your career as a leader, how would you say you've changed as a leader? Any, any part of your leadership style has, has, is a lot different than it was when you started? Um, I would say, I would say I've gotten a lot bolder (laughs) from when I started, which is probably a very natural trajectory, but I mean, there's so much to just figuring out who you are in your own leadership trajectory. Like that it's, I think the self-awareness, if there's one thing people were to focus on in terms of their own leadership at any, at any level in an organization where you are, it's understanding who you are and what you're bringing to the table, where your deficits are and how you plug those. And so I think there's been a ton of self learning for me about who I am and then who I need to bring onto my team to be really effective and where I'm at with Palmer is we have the team, we know where we want to go. And so I think I've, I've, I've entered into this sphere of just like, now it's go time yeah. and being really bold about it. Um, not feeling like we need to, uh, hold back in any way. Cause we have the track record, we have the vision, you know, but it takes a long time to get there. Um, as a leader and I think as an organization and both have to be in alignment then. But um, yeah, I started as an executive director very young. I was 27 when I became an executive director at Rocky Mountain Field Institute. And 
and there was just a lot of learning and being thrown into the deep end. And, and so I think my own leadership has just also been being much more comfortable in my own skin and being, being proud to, to, you know, have these big goals and have these great teams. Yeah, that will. When I hear you say that, the thing that comes to mind is confidence. I mean, I think you yeah. you probably have developed professional confidence, but it seems you've got just an underlying level of confidence in that you know where you want to go and you'll go after it. But then you hire people and you let them do their thing without incessant micromanaging or, or any you know uh, being threatened or anything. That funny thing happened when you hired me within a day of being hired somebody sent out an email to this massive group of people saying that ed robertson is the new executive director of palmer land trust i lost my and, job overnight and i was thinking oh obviously a huge misprint but i was thinking you know you thought it was hilarious and i was thinking there are plenty of leaders who would that would happen and they'd be furious <laughs> or embarrassed or threatened you know and it was just like ha ha that's hilarious it's all right let's get back to work you know and so yep. I, I think um uh, uh, a confidence that's probably been in you for a long time combined with just professional comp- confidence that's developed over the years would help. You know, and, and confidence, it sounds like it's such a straightforward thing that, you know, something we all think about, it's something, or maybe we don't think about. I see so often, you know, those those hints of people lacking confidence, say, if it, it, in a meeting where, where someone is being overly aggressive mm-hmm. and or 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 timid and i see it in a lot of places and i do think working on confidence and and understanding who we all are as individuals and what we're bringing to the table is one of the greatest things as leaders that we can really work to better understand so speaking of confidence um you know the the land business uh in the west i think stereotypically over the years has been kind of a a macho type thing. And at least my old career was about as far on the macho end as you can get. And one of the things that's been so interesting and impressive about you is you've managed to come into the land concert, the private land conservation world and, you know, take over as a leader on a statewide scale. And, you know, you've done that as a, as a woman, which is, has been the exception for, to the rule for a long time. And so can you talk a little bit about that, about doing, you know, being a leader, not just working in the industry, but being a leader in the industry and doing it as, as a woman and then some of the stuff Palmer does to celebrate women in conservation? Yeah, well, and, and, and what first comes to mind is, is back in my days at Rocky Mountain Field Institute when I was a very young executive director, there was an experience. It was, I mean, I was just like a few months on the job. I went to a meeting with my office coordinator, who's a woman, but an older woman, and we both walk in, and, and whoever was running the meeting looked at her and, and said, oh, you must be Rebecca Jewett, the executive director, because <laughs> she was older. And, and that sort of thing, I mean, talk about just kind of setting the tone at times for my career, but I actually appreciate, I have come to appreciate, I know that if there are oftentimes when I waltz into a room and all five foot two of me, people (laughs) don't assume I'm the executive director. And that's been the biggest thing to overcome. But once, once I realized that, that I'm kind of, I'm underestimated, uh-huh. um, maybe a little bit of an underdog, depending on, you know, the other organizations in the room, um, that that's actually a huge asset. Huge. And and I can come in and, and present really great ideas. And, and my strategy has really been, 
you know, to try to get into the center of things, you know, to get involved and get in the center, get on the board of, you know, our statewide coalition and get involved. And once, once I've been involved, it's like, yeah, the ideas are there. People really appreciate, you know, this perspective that I bring. But that hardest part has been how do you get a seat at the table? And that's what I've had to strategize at times. But I actually think having to think through some of that, that's what makes me a better leader is I, I, I am giving things that thought and, and really, you know, being just, uh, I guess, just thoughtful and strategic about things that have then informed these groups that I'm a part of in a way that has helped with the leadership. But I think, uh, you know, we, we put on an event that we call women in conservation. It started as this really tiny, it was in somebody's backyard, and actually started when I started at Palmer just as a way to introduce me to our donors. And it's, it's taken off over the years. And this past April, we had our, our fourth Women in Conservation with over 150 people at this venue in, in Colorado Springs. And we bring in speakers uh, that are women working in conservation to just provide their perspective, which is and, and then it mostly attracts a, a female crowd. But the energy just around, you know, what what women have done and to, to sing those praises is a cool thing. And um, but I think it's important not to focus too much on that to the exclusion of, you know, men or it's really it goes back to that community mm-hmm. perspective. And how do we balance everything and how do we bring people together together? Um, so I think at the end of the day, it's actually been a huge strength to be a short, young yeah. <laughs> female executive director. Results speak for themselves. <laughs> you know, so, and mean. again, I do like kind of being the underdog, so <laughs> well, and, they don't and, see it coming. Well, and then you think about, you know, from just and from an organizational perspective, I'm the only man in this office. You know, I know we got you Matt, are. We got Matt down in Rocky Ford, but I mean, it's um, that that whole, I guess it's kind of a... It's not accurate at all, this idea about the, the manly, um, macho stuff about land conservation, because that, that went out the door maybe a generation ago. But I think the the idea of it still kind of hangs around, but it's not the reality, because here we are. Here we know? are. Well, that's not by design. No, not at all. It just You're hiring the best people. <laughs> hiring really good people who, who happen to be a lot of women. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's just, it's again, back to, we were talking about team and what everyone brings to the team. You know, that's what I love is like, what are the different strengths and, and skills that everyone's bringing? And we do have this amazing team here at Palmer. And then you could extrapolate that on a statewide scale with different organizations as this kind of bigger conservation team. And I'm part of an effort right now to rebuild our statewide coalition. And so talking with a lot of organizations and folks throughout the state and really identifying what are our strengths and how do we build that together into a powerhouse, you know, team. Well, so I'm, I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast and have listened to me stumble and mumble in my accent for 60 some hours of interviews are wondering why in the hell you would hire somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> So I just, I don't, I don't, I hate talking about myself or even listening to myself talk, but I think people may be interested in what, why I'm here. And I don't want to talk about myself. So can you give just very brief, like, like 10 seconds? (laughs) I mean, so Ed moved down to Colorado (laughs) Springs about a year ago from Boulder. And, and as soon as I learned that, I was so excited and, and, and it, 
his background so i in land conservation you know to there's so many different facets there's the ecological side there's the transaction side there's understanding the numbers and and so what i'm so excited about having you on board with is your brokerage background um that is just really can inform our projects throughout the region and the transaction side um you you know you work incredibly well with other people and this podcast is a testament to that <laughs> uh and so you have an incredibly strong Strong network and working with landowners is a huge strength. Um, so I'm I'm so excited to have you on board. It's yeah, just thrilling to to continue to build out this team and together we're going to go solve Bessemer and and bring the Pueblo Chile to its rightful yeah, throne. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> no, I'm I'm so happy to be here. I can't even I can't even get my head around how awesome it is. It's a, it's been a long time coming to go full time into conservation, but. I just I, I wanted the right opportunity and the right organization, and it just all lined up. So here we go. Here um, we go. So I've got a few kind of quick questions that I, I run through with people, everybody on the podcast. And so can we do those? Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite books about the American West? I know that you ask this question because I listen to your podcast. Yeah. And this is where I have to admit I don't read a lot of books about the American West, but I'm going to start because you have your book club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You should. <laughs> I read a lot of books about management and people yeah. and styles. That makes and, sense. Um, and so, you know. What just are those? Give, like give a, like those. a couple of recent books, uh, The Power of Habit. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. I forget who wrote that now. Do, Duhigg? Charles Charles Duh- Duhigg. Yeah. I think about that book all the time. And in reading a book like that also really helps as I interact with other people and with my own team, you know, understanding motivations. But, you know, he breaks down how habits are created and, and how you can create new habits. So uh, loved that book. I really liked the book uh, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. She's the one who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, so, I didn't. I've never heard of that by her. It's it's all about creativity. Okay. And, um, it, I mean, it's it's an easy read. It's just, it's, I, I don't tend to think about creativity in my work, but it got me thinking about that and just how we are more creative. So reading that book made me think about, you know, as we're doing work on farms, how can, what is our creative outlet there? How are we being more creative, um, with these, with these projects? So I read a lot of books like that. I loved Let My People Go Surfing, Yvonne Chouinard. Yeah. Um, that book, I mean, I'd, I certainly haven't implemented everything from that book, but just thinking about a team and, and really putting trust in people mm-hmm. and, and how, how you can build a team that gets really cool, big stuff done yep. um, without a lot of rigidity, you know, mm-hmm. by really giving employees a lot of freedom. Loved that book. And then we're both big fans of uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Love Deep Work. Is that why you schedule blocks where there's no meetings? Is that a direct result? Is that a result of deep work? It's totally a result of that book. Yeah, it's referring to my calendar where I have uh, two hours blocked out every day, no meetings, which I break my own rule all the time and put meetings in there. But the goal of that was I just want to set aside two hours that I dictate. Yeah. And, um, and I hopefully at some point will really use that for deeper, more, you know, work where you just need to focus. Um, that's exactly why I did that. Well, I just had deep work working on a, uh, one of those grant applications and I closed the door in my old job. I always have to have the cell phone ready because people are always calling, uh, turn the cell phone off, turn the email off, close the door. 
and I was thinking about deep work and I just, I focused in and it took about 15 minutes, but then you get in the flow. It's so powerful. It's really powerful. And I mean, at the end of the day, we're just, we're not very disciplined day in and day out with things like email. And it's so easy. You know, we all have days where all of a sudden the whole day is gone. And what did we do? We just responded to email. Mm -hmm. But again, what did we move the needle on? And I'm trying so hard to figure out how to create more of a a day-to-day framework that supports the big work that we're trying to do while also managing, of course, all the relationships and all the little things that, that do matter as well. Yeah. It's about being proactive, you know? Um, so any favorite films, wait, wait, back to the books real quick. What's your favorite book of all time? If you had to pick one. I feel like these always end up kind of cliche, but well, they're cliches I for a reason because they're awesome. To Kill books. a Mockingbird. That's a good one. That w- that one That's is really good. good, and I don't book. even read fiction that much, but I love that book. Have you read the new one or the, not no, the new one? I have it. Right, the quote unquote. New yeah, one. yeah, I have it, but I haven't read it yet. My wife read it. I'd say it was good, but not. It's not as good. See, I almost kind of don't want to ruin. Yeah, the... that's, they shouldn't have put that out. <laughs> I think there was some funny business going on there, like some heirs put it out. It wasn't. The, oh the yeah, I author. think you're right. Yeah. Yep, I think you're right. I don't uh, think she wanted it out. Uh, that's too bad. So, any favorite documentaries or films? I don't know if I can name one, but I do love. I mean, I really love like the Banff Film Festival mm-hmm. and those adventure films. And I mean, I wish I could actually name one, and I can't. But but filmmakers who have an ability to get out into nature and make it real and tell a compelling story. I think that's really powerful. So I love those types of, of films and I don't watch them enough. You know, they only kind of come through town sporadically, but I need to seek it out more. Those are good and they're, they're powerful. You know, they're usually 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. So they tend to be short and yeah, I did try to start the, um, the Roosevelt documentary by what I got, I got, pretty far i mean it's pretty long you write it it's like 14 is it 14 hours or eight hours <laughs> okay then i didn't get very far it's i got long. like three hours in well that's mostly really TR part. you don't need to you don't need to worry about franklin <laughs> all you need to worry about is teddy roosevelt so the first third is all you need um well so I, then i watched that and that was really interesting it is good I, the thing about ken burns documentaries is i wanted to hurry up like i wish i could put it in <laughs> in like fast forward and watch it fast forward. Cause I'm like, all right, let's go. More Which info, he's more probably info. like, no, Ed, slow that's down, exactly the point. Down. Yeah. Yeah. I need to, <laughs> need to slow down. <laughs> so, um, you've alluded to a few of these things in when we've been talking, but what do you do for fun when you're not working, saving the landscapes of Southern Colorado? Right now I am climbing a lot of mountains. I'm trying yes. to climb the 100 tallest summits in Colorado. I'm not doing it quickly. I'm doing it as I can yeah. <laughs> on a spare Saturday or Sunday, but, uh, I've climbed 47, 14ers and, uh, you know, a dozen 13ers. So I'm working, wow. I, I have a long ways to go still, but it's been such a fun way to explore different parts of the state. And I just, there's something that happens when I get above tree line. It's like my soul realigns mm-hmm. and that is where I feel most just at home and in, in the, the grandeur of nature. I love the Alpine. I do too. It's so unique. What, what do you do around, around town? Around town. Uh, so I'm really trying to get more into mountain biking because mm-hmm. I love, I love skiing in the winter and mountain biking is kind of the closest thing in the summer. So I've been doing some local trails. You put me in my place mountain biking uh, in Vail <laughs> the other day. I, we I were both huffing and puffing up that <laughs> Well, we were both huffing and puffing and then you were flying downhill and I was walking the bike downhill. So <laughs> I got a lot to learn with that. So I'm working on that. I, you know, I'd love to go. 
I, I hike, you know, I love section 16 is one of my favorite Me too. hikes. Um, and we have so many great trails right out here. I can uh, walk to garden of the gods from my house. So I have a favorite kind of evening walk yeah. there. I can get into those red rocks pretty quickly. So we, we already talked a little bit about this question, but the most powerful experience you've ever had, and we, we were talking about as you were a kid, but I'll narrow it down. Is there a, is there a crazy experience you've had climbing 14ers? We were talking about this the other day about lightning. Um, but is there is there one experience that sticks out as well, crazy or memorable? So I, I worked in uh, South Colony Lakes Basin where it's home to Crestone Needle, Crestone Peak, Humboldt Peak, mm. right oh, outside of that. Westcliff, oh, and then Crestone on the other side. I love the Songrays. I spent a lot of time in the Songrays. And a, a powerful experience. I spent a lot of summers back there, and, and I – one summer, you know, people, people, that's going to get a little dark. People get hurt all the time, of course, in the mountains. And one summer we were doing trail work and all of a sudden El Paso County search and rescue came in along with, uh, other search and rescues. And they said, Oh, a guy's missing. And we had a whole trail crew up there and, and they spent the whole day looking and there were like 90 of them walking all over the basin, you know, all off trail and uh, and then at one point they said, well, it's changed from a search to a recovery. Oof. And we were in there when when they pulled out, you know, a guy's body and carried him out. And I, that stuck that has stuck with me just as this and as 14ers get even more popular. And I serve on the Colorado 14ers initiative board. You know, it's these are dangerous places and that respect for peaks mm-hmm. and the mountains and how we're having fun in them and just what we're aware of. I think that's so critical. And I really wonder how do we teach that ethic of safety and you know, leave no trace as the state continues to grow. But that was a pretty powerful experience seeing that. And I know that wasn't a fun story, but that has just been really formative to me as I've enjoyed the outdoors. Well, that's I, could, the, the, I could do a more fun story if you want. No, no, no. That's a good one for people to hear because there was an article in the high country news a few weeks ago about um, how social media is making everybody think these mountains are just a a barrel of laughs and everybody's having a good time up there. And um, they're extremely dangerous. And um, I think people need to hear that. And I think I had Lloyd on the podcast, executive executive director of the 14ers initiative. It was one of the first ones I did. Um, And so people should listen to that if they're interested, but I know you guys are making some videos about safety. Yes. 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 Which is so important. I mean, last year there were what, like seven deaths on Capitol peak, which is this really well-known, you know, has this knife edge and it, they were all from people making dumb decisions. That's the thing, getting off the route and seven people. I mean, that's, you know, in Denali every year, seven to 10 people die. And that's one of the most challenging mountains in North America with the most intense weather. And so we're talking about Capitol Peak that you can do in a day and there are people falling off at that rate. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I've never it's done like, it because it, it makes me nervous. And so, I mean, it's, um, people need to understand this. It's no joke up there. It's no joke. And I think as Colorado continues to grow, I really, I've been giving more and more thought to how do we, not just the safety, but also the sustainability of these wonderful natural places, and especially the Alpine, which is incredibly sensitive as as an ecosystem. How, as a state, do we manage this better? And and I'm really, I've given a lot of thought to, you know, can we better engage the outdoor industry in this? And there was a really good article in High Country News called, um, your stoke won't save us. Yeah, yeah. 
And and it was all about how it we can't just promote these places to play in. We need to be part of the solution to figure out how we're going to sustain them, how we're going to keep them well managed in the face of really dire funding situations, and how the outdoor industry needs to step up and be part of that. And I, I agree. I think that's incredibly important. And um, I'm part of the Pikes Peak Outdoor Recreation Alliance. Palmer Landtrust is here in the Springs, which is a, a coalition of outdoor businesses and you know guiding companies and user groups and nonprofits and public agencies to really talk about Pikes Peak. I think it's a really good case study. How are we going to manage Pikes Peak in the face of just startling growth along the Front Range? I'll put a link to that article, uh, the High Country News article, because it's really good. Um, if you had to narrow it down to one place, what is your favorite location in the West? This is so hard. I've been thinking about this the whole time because <laughs> I, I knew you were going to ask. I don't I don't have an answer. <laughs> I have a very vague answer, but I, I don't know. What is, do you have any? Well, the first one that comes to mind, because I mentioned it earlier, is I've spent a lot of time in Indian Creek Canyon. Sure. Uh, it's just outside of Canyonlands yep. in Utah doing trail work, built built Rocky Mountain Field Institute built most of the trails out there to the climbing areas and just those you know there's something about the Utah desert and those amazing towers uh, sandstone formations and towers that is just it's kind of like the alpine for me it's it's that sense of place becomes very alive there that's unique down there it's so and it's so different from here it's you know? so different, and it's not that far away. Not, not that far, you know, it's just yeah. our neighbor. But I've seen it in snow. I've seen it in, you know, hot summer. Uh, it's I've seen it through all the seasons, and it's a special place. Here's another challenging question, um, but it's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? My my first mentor was the founder of Rocky Mountain Field Institute. And, and he passed away a couple years ago. But uh, And I never would have called him my mentor when he was alive, and he never would have called me his mentee. But in retrospect, I learned so much from him. And, and this, uh, his advice, you know, he just, like, keep going. Just this, like, relentless focus and passion. And just find that and keep going. Yeah. And I could tell that's what fueled him through starting a couple organizations. And um, and he was also a, a rock climber that all these crazy first ascents throughout Colorado and the West. And and just, yeah, this this just like keep focused, keep be passionate and just get shit done. Yeah, it makes <laughs> like, sense. I mean, I and I think you if you really want to make an impact or have an impact, you can't work hard enough unless you love it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I think it's hard to fake it. There, I mean, there are obviously mm-hmm. exceptions to that rule, but you have to love it in order to work hard enough to really make a difference. Yeah. And I think that passion and is, you know, from a leadership perspective, it's contagious. People yeah. love being around people like that. I do. I mean, I think it's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I also have this favorite quote. Um, okay, it's, it's, uh, the quote is, simplify, simplify. And I think it was like, Thoreau who said that or something and then somebody responds in return oh my gosh I the two authors having a conversation imagine that simplify simplify and the other one goes I think one simplify would have sufficed (laughs) but this concept of continuing to keep things also very simple like you can be focused you can be passionate but gotta keep it simple and I've been I've had this kind of mantra for myself for a while of just relentless focus like what am I focused on in its simplest form because that's when I'm going to be successful that's great and that's 
makes sense in theory, but it's extremely hard to so hard. put in. You know, simplifying is a lot easier. I mean, a lot harder than making something complicated. Exactly. Um, so next to last question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and it's just people who love the West one way or the other, artists, athletes, ranchers, people like us, conservationists, what would, what would you ask or what words of wisdom would you have for people listening? Uh, two things come to mind. One is how can we all continue to balance the competing priorities? And I think it's not useful as we do this work to be too far on one side or the other. So in, and you, you have, you know, listeners who are doing so much, like thinking about what their trade is, how they can find balance in that to help solve some of these vexing problems in the West uh, and getting out of their comfort zone to find some of that balance uh, because there, like, we can't. It can't just be conservation. It's like it's conservation and how we're going to grow sustainably yeah. as cities. Um, it, there's always two sides to the coin. So how do we find solutions that that really achieve that balance? And then the other thing is getting involved. And I know that sounds like a cop out. Everyone says that, but the something, a piece of advice I give to people um, all the time, especially when they're trying to figure out how to get into this career, is join a board. And I feel like people don't know that, you know, boards of directors of nonprofits, they, they tend to, they just, they just tend to have older people on them. You know, you have to kind of be in that social circle, maybe in a community, but bringing on, you know, the perspective that we all have through whatever we're doing and to bring that onto a board. And even if you're really young, like I tell college students all the time, go join a board. And even if they say it's a three-year term and you're too young, we'll say, well, how would you consider a one-year young professional term for me? Because I really want to gain this experience. And I think I have a lot to add. But I think if we could get more diverse board service in conservation organizations and nonprofits throughout the West, that'll also help with this problem solving. I think that's great advice. I completely agree. So, how can people connect with you, with Palmer? And then can you talk also about some of the upcoming events that Palmer's having? Yeah, so uh, palmerlandtrust.org is our website. We're on social media and Instagram as well. Um, uh, I don't have a big presence <laughs> through there. <laughs> I have a Twitter account that yeah. I use during conferences. You're welcome to find me there in the last conference I was at. Um but uh, but certainly connecting with our work, which can get you connected into the greater conservation community in, in Colorado, at least, as well. Uh, we have some great events coming up. Our biggest event of the year is called the Southern Colorado Conservation Awards. It's October 3rd. It's a Wednesday. This is now in its ninth year. We, we gather a handful of stories from throughout Southern Colorado, conservation stories, and tell them uh, through short films. And we really do get feedback that this is just one of the most engaging events people go to and one of the best conservation events. You can also find past um, stories. So they're award winners, past award winners and their stories through our website. And they're really moving, you know, short little vignettes. Um, it might be a rancher. It might be, you know, a local school doing something with local food. So this year we have four amazing award winners with very compelling stories and that'll be October 3rd in Colorado Springs. 
That'll be great. Um, yeah, it's, I went a long time ago. Um, right when I moved to Colorado, I went, and it was. I've been to so many of those things, and it's the one of the few that stick out as as a really, really memorable one. And the the films are great. So yeah, I encourage people to come and check us out online. But thank you for your time. Thank you for hiring Thanks, me. Thanks, Ed. I'm glad to be here. This is a great <laughs> conversation. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.